Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm extremely excited about the show we're going to have today. Thanks for tuning in. If you've listened to our show for long, you'll remember our episode on the irrefutable evidence for Easter. You can find that show and all of our previous shows archived at eternityimpact.blogspot.com. If you listen to that show, you probably remember that we quoted Dr. Gary Habermas of Liberty University, a world-renowned expert on the reliability of the New Testament documents and the authority on the historical evidence for the resurrection of Christ. He is the Distinguished Professor of Apologetics and Philosophy and Chairman of the Department of Philosophy and Theology at Liberty University. He has also authored 36 books, including The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus, Beyond Death, Exploring the Evidence for Immortality, The Historical Jesus, Ancient Evidence for the Life of Christ, The Risen Jesus and Future Hope, In Defense of Miracles, A Comprehensive Case for God's Action in History, What's Good About Feeling Bad, Finding Purpose and a Path Through Your Pain, The Thomas Factor, Using Your Doubts to Draw Closer to God, Resurrected, Tangible Evidence that Jesus Rose from the Dead, and Dealing with Doubt. Again, those are just a few of his numerous books. He's also been quoted in many other books and is known around the world as the expert on the evidence for the resurrection of Christ. Welcome to The God Solution, Dr. Habermas. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. No problem. Glad for the opportunity. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Ah, that's always a hard thing, isn't it, to, to <laughs> talk about yourself. But um, I've been at this area of apologetics for 35 years. I've written or edited or whatever about 35 books and do a fair number of interviews. Real interest in the area of apologetics and issues like the resurrection of Jesus, historical Jesus, dealing with doubt, and things like that. Well, that's exciting. Those are some of the things I want to talk to you about today. But okay. before we get there, what led you to choose this path in life? What's your story? I came to my love and apologetics from personal questions. I don't want to sound selfish, but I had some big doubts, big issues, and I really didn't do it with a view toward how to help people. I was just struggling to keep my head above water, and I was wondering... Is there anywhere to go? Can Christianity be shown to be true? People were telling me, quit asking questions, just take it by faith. And I had a faith crisis. I was afraid I was slipping away from Christianity, um, and that bugged me. But then as time went on, and I kept kind of slipping. I kind of didn't even pay attention to where I was heading and considered other paths and other religious choices. And, And always the question that was on my mind was the question of whether Christianity was true and so on. So digging for answers myself, push came to shove, and somebody would ask me a question, and somebody else would tell somebody else that I helped them, so then they called me. And then years later when I finished my Ph.D. and chance to speak here and a chance to speak there and several hundred interviews and probably a thousand or more speaking engagements and just kind of blossomed. In other words, the questions that helped me, hopefully, were the same sorts of answers that the Lord would use to uh, help others. That's phenomenal. I always find that's the case, that nobody is without doubt. And a lot of times the people with the most answers are the people that have had to struggle through that doubt and find those answers. I think a lot of people in our audience can relate to you. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 tells us, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. And verse 19 continues, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. 
Most Christians know that Christ's resurrection is what sets him apart from all other religious figures, and if he was not raised, we'd be in the same boat as everyone else. If, however, he is risen, as the Bible claims, and if he really has power over death and the ability to give all who put their trust in him eternal life, we truly can have hope. So it kind of all hinges on the evidence for the resurrection. So you're one of the experts and probably the foremost expert on the historical evidence for the resurrection. What is some of the historical evidence for the cornerstone of that hope, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? Well, Nate, the way I do it, the the way I present the data, like, for example, when I go to a secular campus and I get one shot, you know, one night at students, you've got to say something that will catch people's attention because there's a lot of widespread views out there, such as, you know, religions are paths up the same mountain, they all have the same faith basis, nobody really has any evidence. Now, I will say in passing that in studying other religious traditions, I would say that I almost never came across anything in the other religious traditions that looked anything like evidence. But when I get a shot, I try to point out to them, I'll say, look, I'm not going to come before you guys today saying, I believe this book's the Word of God and therefore Jesus is raised, because that's not going to press you if you're not a Christian any more than if somebody who's you know, in another religion said that to me. So I said, I'll tell you, the method I'm going to use is this. I'm going to assume a basis based on what scholarship, what critical scholars concede surrounding the last weekend of Jesus' life. And I'm going to use a list of facts that critics, left, right, center, skeptics, what we all hold in common. And I'm going to argue that if we use the data that we all share, Yes, it comes from the New Testament, but critics also allow it because there are good reasons for each of these views. That if we take only those commonly held facts, we have enough of a basis to say that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Now, that's what I call the minimal facts method. The part you hear, which is the part I just explained, is the part that says everybody shares these facts. By far the most important first step that precedes that is that The reason everybody holds those facts is because there's great reasons for each one. A a skeptic, an atheist, they're not going to grant those things unless there's good reasons. So the argument looks like this. First of all, I got a bunch of facts, and these facts are held by all people because they are so well evidenced by other facts. And it's that data that shows that Jesus is raised to the dead. So in a way, you could call this what I call the minimal facts approach. You could call it the lowest common denominator approach. I'm not citing something simply because it's in the Bible, I'm only going to use data that pass the skeptic's test for truth as well as the believer's test for truth. Now, I know that you have different points that you say all authorities, whether secular or Christian, would agree on. You mentioned those in The Risen Jesus and Future Hope, and I think that's what you might be referring to. Could you list those for us? It's just a list that I've noticed that's present in almost everybody's writings. The list would involve things like this. Jesus died due to the rigors of crucifixion. He was buried. At this point, I don't argue where or how he was buried because there's different viewpoints. I'll just say he was buried. His disciples despaired and lost hope. Normal psychological reaction. They thought that this might be the end of things. The world was turned upside down. Then most scholars will concede that the tomb in which he was buried was found empty just a few days later. And their hopes rose exponentially. All of a sudden they were excited, you know, wanting to spread the word. And why is it? That's because, and virtually no scholar disagrees with this, I'm being very careful the way I state it, but the reason for their hope 
is that they had real experiences that they believed were appearances of the risen Jesus. In other words, something happened to them that they thought were appearances of the risen Jesus. Their lives were changed. We get some skeptics, like James, the brother of Jesus, who was an unbeliever, as far as we know, when, when his brother was on earth. He became a believer, presumably because of 1 Corinthians 15, 7, because he saw Jesus again. Paul, the persecutor of the church, alias Saul of Tarsus, became a believer after he met the risen Jesus. So those are some of the things I would uh, list. I'd also say that their teaching of the resurrection, besides the eyewitness quality of their testimony, another very important fact is that they reported very, very early. Don't believe any skeptic who hasn't really studied the data and who tell you, ah, this story didn't make it around for 30 or 40 years. Nothing like that is the case. We have our first report. Some would argue from the same year in which Jesus was crucified. I mean, we hear stories like uh, the Gospels are 40 years later, or, or started to be written 40 years later. Earlier, in the same passage you read, 1 Corinthians 15, it is the best accepted critical portion of Scripture. And in verses 3 to 7, Paul is reporting an earlier tradition. In fact, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, he said, I gave you what I was given And almost all scholars believe that Paul is passing on material here from the 30s A.D., and some say it goes all the way back to 30 A.D., to the year of the crucifixion. So it's very, very early material reported by guys who were there. Some of them were skeptics. That's the sort of data I use to build this case. I think one of the main skeptics that you were referring to, and somebody that I've read and many people on college campuses have, is Bart Ehrman. He readily admits that Jesus is a historical figure, yet he tries to get around the resurrection by telling us that as crazy as the alternatives are, referring to things like the swoon theory and, and other types of alternatives, most people readily admit those are outrageous and not plausible. But he goes on to say, even though they're not plausible, they're still more believable than that Christ actually rose from the dead. He also claims that historians have no capacity to make claims about miraculous events. So tell me where he's wrong. Well, I think he's wrong at a couple real crucial points. And he's a nice guy, I'll say that. He's a, he's a very nice guy. But I think the problem with his critique is philosophical in nature, is, is probably as big a problem as any. And by the way, Bart Ehrman would be one of these guys who would accept virtually everything, if not everything, on my list of facts. Mm-hmm. In fact, almost everybody who writes does, but I'll just say that as a footnote. I think his issue is twofold. The reason he says, I don't like those natural theories, but any of these theories is more likely than the resurrection is because the chief mindset on our campuses today, the dominant worldview in the Western world, Western Europe, North America, Australia, the dominant philosophical position is what we call naturalism. Naturalism is the philosophical view that the natural world is all there is, and what we learn, we chiefly learn through science. Science for the naturalist is like the Bible for Christians. It's whatever science shows. And the naturalist worldview says there's no supernatural. What you see is what you get. This is the whole universe. There's no God, no supernatural. So naturalists are atheists or at least agnostics by definition. Okay, if you come to the table with that Western naturalistic type perspective, he's right. Of course, the craziest naturalistic theory is more likely than the resurrection because on his view... There can be no resurrections because there can be nothing that actually turns out to be supernatural. There could be weird events, but there can't be anything that's actually supernatural. So when he says 
anything's more likely, it's because he is importing, he is smuggling in. I don't mean that in a bad way. He probably has no idea he's doing this. Just like when Christians speak, they speak from their Christian viewpoint, even without thinking. I'm saying this from a Christian perspective. We just don't think like that. We just talk. Mm -hmm. Well, if he is thinking with a naturalistic perspective, he's an agnostic. If he's thinking with a naturalistic perspective, then anything is more likely. I would say, before you can assume your worldview, in order to argue that it's going to be the criteria for everything else, you need to prove your worldview. So prove naturalism, and then you have a right to use it as the backdrop and say, well, there can't be resurrections because there's no God and no religion. But prove your worldview. If you live in a climate where almost all your buddies are naturalists, that's like going to church and having someone ask a question about the Bible, and there's ten people standing around, and they're all going to take this, and they're all nodding their head yes while you're answering. Well, in a straight university, if you assume naturalism, everyone's going to say, there can't be a resurrection. I don't know what the problem is. I can't give you a refutation. I can't tell you what's wrong with your data. But there's something wrong because naturalism is true. Well, just like they expect us to show that the Bible's the Word of God, I want to know that naturalism is true. So that's one problem. I can't assume their mindset, so I can't buy his critique that anything is more likely. I hope that makes sense. There's other things I say, but, but maybe I'll let that one go. I'll, I'll let the second big response go, because I've talked a while on this one. Does that sound plain? Does, did I, I, naturalism is not an easy subject, and most people aren't trained philosophically. So if you hear something there that I need to explain further, you know, go ahead. No, I think that's a phenomenal answer. And I think the reality is that science, by definition, only has authority over the natural world. They cannot make claims about a spiritual universe. My background is in chemistry. That's what I got my degree in. So I'm totally aware that chemistry and all the natural sciences can make claims about the natural world, but they have no authority over the supernatural world. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution on KDUR, 91.9 and 93.9 FM here in Durango, Colorado, or KDUR.org online. We're talking with Dr. Habermas, a world-renowned expert on the authenticity of the New Testament documents and the authority on the evidence for the resurrection of Christ. I'm so glad that you're tuning in. So it's not that historians cannot say anything about miraculous events in the past, but rather that naturalists cannot say anything about miracles in the past, because naturalism doesn't allow for miracles in the first place. Right. And, 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 so. and many scientists, as you know, are Christians. Yes. But, but they are usually going to buy another view the view I'm descri just described a moment ago, you might call ontological or epistemic naturalism, the world as it is, and why. But they often assume a second kind of naturalism called methodological naturalism. Mm -hmm. And even Christian scientists will agree to this. Methodological naturalism says that, well, I'm a Christian, but my faith operates over in that category over there. When I'm in the lab in this category... I can only describe natural things because that's all science could do. See, to me, that's a lesser, it's not quite as rigorous a position mm -hmm. as the overarching naturalism that backs the uh, methodological naturalism. But if you come into the lab or into your worldview with those discussions, it, it's sort of like I'm saying this. What if I answered Bart Ehrman and I said, or anybody else, anybody else at State University, what if I said, fellas, I appreciate what you just said, but anything is more likely than your view because I got the Bible on my side. Now, if I said that, what would they do? You See, better prove it. <laughs> they, they couldn't stop laughing, right? Mm -hmm. They, they yeah. wouldn't stop laughing. They'd go, ha, 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 you got the Bible on your side. Well, that's wonderful. 
If the Bible's true, you're right. But since it's not true, you're wrong. And they would laugh. Because, why? Because I'm quoting the Bible without giving any reasons. What I'm saying is, let's just look at it in reverse. In apologetics, Nate, we spend all our time giving reasons for the Bible. Mm-hmm. They don't spend time giving reasons for their worldview because being in the university, I'll I'll repeat this little Mm -hmm. story, but being in the university for them is like our being in church. Everybody agrees with them, so they never have to prove their view. So all they're saying when they go, yeah, it's all illegitimate, it's all more likely than resurrection, you should hear the words, if what I'm saying is true. But how do I know that their worldview is true? That critique is not dealing with the data. If Absolutely. you allow the facts, you can't say to me, yeah, Habermas, I, I accept all your facts, and I really don't know where I would go on this, but I'll tell you where I'm not going to go. Mm-hmm. I'm not yeah. going to go resurrection because resurrections don't happen, or the natural world is all there is, or anything's more likely because we don't see resurrections. If they give those kind of responses, they're doing it from their insider view and I want to know why I should look at it with their perspective instead of with mine. See, in contrast, I hope it's in contrast. Mm-hmm. I hope I don't have my own blinders on. We all do. We all have blinders of some sort. But that's why I use those minimal facts, Nate. That's why I use mm-hmm. this approach. The approach I use takes everybody into account. Mm-hmm. It has the guys on the far right, the guys in the middle, the guys on the far left, and the guys who are off the chart skeptical. Everybody uses these data. And I'll say, let's sit down and talk about these data. What what are these 12 or whatever number, what do these things indicate? I don't want them coming to me and saying, well, I'll tell you what it can't be. It can't be a resurrection because I don't allow that. Well, Mm -hmm. I want to know why you don't allow it. I want to know what it is that you have authority. I mean, do you have insider authority that your view is correct? Mm-hmm. I want them to be as neutral and above board. and I mean, nobody can be neutral. I'm going to be real clear about that. But I want their method to lay things on the table. And us. I want some give and take in the method, just like my method borrows from what everybody across the spectrum believes. I don't want them coming back and interpreting it through their spectrum any more than I'm going to quote. You know, it's like me saying, I won't quote the Bible to you without reasons mm-hmm. if you don't quote your philosophy to me without reasons. And I think your integrity and your approach is why you are such an expert in this field and respected in this field. And so I want to ask you on this topic, how do the embarrassing details and so-called divergent accounts play into this? Well, when you make those list of facts, you might say, well, okay, if, if your skeptical friends that you just said you're bringing the skeptics and the liberals and the moderates and the conservatives to the table, why do they agree on these facts? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, way back when I did my doctoral dissertation at Michigan State University, it was on the resurrection, and my director said to me, I don't care if you use the New Testament, but don't tell me something's true just because the New Testament's true. Mm-hmm. He said, only use those New Testament texts that can withstand criticism. In other words, only use those New Testament texts that are true for certain reasons. Mm-hmm. And, and you might go, well, what would some of those reasons look like? What makes a New Testament text true? Well, critics have a list, a, let's say a check and balance, and they get it from historians, because historians before them use this list. Now, to get to your question, embarrassment is one of the checks and balances. When you ask a critic, when you say to them, hey, you don't believe the Bible's the Word of God, right? Nope. Okay, but you think there's some good facts in the New Testament, right? Yep. Well, how do you think we get those facts? And they'll say, well, there's a variety of reasons. And one of them is the rule of embarrassment. And, and embarrassment says, if you're reporting something, let's just say you're tattletaling on yourself. 
you're telling a story that makes yourself look horrible. You're you're interviewing for a job, and you tell your potential employer something about you that almost screams, don't hire me. Usually people say, the reason you're putting your foot in your mouth and saying something embarrassing is because it's really true. You wouldn't make something up that makes you look like an idiot. Everybody has a vested interest in who they are. Okay, so one of the things we look for in history is an embarrassing report is likely a true report. That's the supposition. And so with those 12 facts I gave you, some of them are very embarrassing. For example, I said that not as many scholars as with the other facts, but that a majority of scholars accept the empty tomb. The main reason for accepting the empty tomb is because women are the authorities. They're the ones. Well, now what good is that? Because in the middle, in the ancient Middle Eastern world, sometimes we hear it said that that um, women couldn't testify in a court of law. That's not true. They can testify, but you never take a woman on an important matter when there's a man who can testify. That's just how the first century Mediterranean, not just Jewish, but that's how the first century Mediterranean world was. So if women are your authorities in all four gospels, you're opening yourself to some crazy criticisms like. Ah, who again is your testimony, women? Ah, ha, ha, ha. Yeah, great. Well, the fact that if they made these stories up, they just would not have used women. That's how the culture works at that time. So the fact that they are unanimous about women being there is very embarrassing. That means it's probably true. I gave two other examples earlier. I talked about James and Paul. You know, it's pretty embarrassing that the Lord's brother didn't believe him. But the New Testament reports, right in the Gospel accounts, well, Mark and John, tell us that when Jesus came to his hometown, his family and his brothers and sisters didn't believe him. That's really embarrassing, so it's probably true. Another example is Paul, uh, alias Saul of Tarsus, I called him. He persecuted the church, thought he was doing God a favor, tried to run the church out of existence. Pretty embarrassing. Paul says over and over again, 1 Corinthians 15, same chapter, he says, I'm the least of the apostles because I persecuted the church. Very embarrassing, so therefore probably true. Those are three examples, James, Paul, and the women, examples how embarrassment works into this resurrection apologetic. Just real briefly, what about the divergent accounts? Some people would bring up different issues between Gospels that seem to imply that they are contradictory. Two comments. First, I think whatever account they bring up can be answered. I, too, too many people have a really weak view of contradiction. They'll mm -hmm. say, Oh, these two counts are contradicting each other. Why? Because they're each telling a different story. Well, take an everyday example. If you're telling me you do something and the next sentence you tell me you do the opposite, people would say, yeah, but you just told me you did the opposite, not what you're saying now. And you go, I can clear that up easily. One of them happened on Tuesday night. One of them happened on Thursday night. And you go, oh, different nights. Well, the principle of contradiction says that two things cannot both be and not be in the same time, same place, same manner. Well, Tuesday and Thursday are not same time, same place, same manner. Well, a lot of the things that they claim are differences in the Gospels are looking with different perspectives and not really paying attention to whether they're same place, same time, and so on. So first of all, I would say those can be answered. But let's just for the sake of the argument, say somebody raises their hand and they go, yeah, but here's some cases in the Gospels. The sec second thing I would say is, I, first thing I'd say is that's not a contradiction because, and the second thing I'd say is, you know, I don't think it's a contradiction, but your question implies something that helps my case because what it shows is I'm not copying from you. There's, there's no collusion here. They help my case. 
you know, as a professor, if you see two people sitting together and they look like they have the exact five questions side by side, you wonder if they copied. But if they diverge with each other in two or three places, they're probably not copying, at least not on those questions. So that's how it works. I would say, look, I put on the table these 12 facts we agree in. Your question says, yeah, but there's a lot of things we don't agree on. And my second answer is, yeah, but see, we're not discussing things we don't agree in. We're talking about things we agree in. You agree with these 12. Let's stay on the subject of what you and I have in common. Could you give us five reasons that we should believe the resurrection is a fact of history? Yeah, I guess if I had to put them in order or something like order, my very first comment would be we have eyewitness testimony. Now, when a lot of critics hear you say that, they think you're talking about the Gospels. Not all critics like the Gospels, although I'll tell you they're coming back. There's some really strong treatments of the Gospels that are coming back now. But I just want to make a plain. I don't argue. As a general rule, I would argue from the Apostle Paul. Paul is the critical darling today. So I would start with Paul. Paul tells us in Galatians 1, and then again in Galatians 2, everybody except Galatians is a book written by Paul. Paul tells us that he went to Jerusalem, spent time with Peter and James, the brother of Jesus. In the next chapter, he went back to Jerusalem, he spent time with Peter, James, and now John is there. So they're the big four in the early church. Mm -hmm. Peter, James, the brother of Jesus, John, and Paul. They're the most foremost influential guys. Paul says in Galatians 2 that they're specifically discussing the nature of the gospel. What's the gospel? Deity, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So they had to be discussing the resurrection. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 2, verse 6, they added nothing to me. We were on the same page regarding the gospel. So my first argument would be to say, here's this foursome, and in the previous chapter, a threesome, the same group except John. They're accepting the resurrection. Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 15, 11, we're teaching the same thing. Whether you get it from them, whether you get it from me, we're going to hear the same message. That's extremely important. Eyewitness testimony. Secondly, I said earlier, early is real, real key, because if we can get the resurrection test, you know, material, Back to the 30s A.D., it's extremely early. Usually Christians say, Mark is early, a few decades later. That's usually the Christian argument. I'm saying, no, we can get it back to, at the most, 35 A.D., maybe back to 30 A.D. You go, well, I think Jesus was crucified in 33. That's the other popular date. You go, great. Well, then it'd be back to 33 A.D. So eyewitness and early, I think, are the two most important arguments. Three, I would add those eyewitnesses, the embarrassing ones, from Paul and James. I often count those as two different ones because they're very different. And if I had to give one more, number five, I think I might use the empty tomb. In fact, sometimes I tell my students those are three E's, three E's to remember, early, eyewitness, and empty tomb. I would think those might be the five strongest reasons. You might want to talk about their transformations, the fact that they were changed. And people say, well, religion changes everybody. That's true. But no other religion has a resurrected person. These are the earliest witnesses. They were changed because they believed they saw the risen Jesus. So the fact that they were changed is a direct pointer to the resurrection. So I'll, I'll stick with those six. You can find more about Dr. Habermas at GaryHabermas.com. G-A-R-Y-H-A-B-E-R-M-A-S.com. Again, GaryHabermas.com. Thanks again so much for being on the show with us today. We wish you all the best and are so thankful for all the great work you do, giving believers everywhere reasons for a confident step of faith. Thanks for spending some time with us. Okay, Nate. Bye-bye. Bye. Wherever you are today, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is overwhelming, and it's not something that you can ignore. 
If Christ rose from the dead, and the evidence tells us he did, and if he promised to give you eternal life if you put your trust in him, and he did, you today have the opportunity to trust him and to experience victory over death, eternal life because of what he did at the cross 2,000 years ago. The Bible says he literally nailed our sins to the cross so that anyone who puts their trust in him can be guaranteed an eternal life with him in heaven. I would encourage you today, if you've never taken that step to put your trust in Christ, to do that. Having heard some of the evidence that you heard today, please come to Jesus. Invite him to come into your life. Ask him to forgive your sins. And he says at that very moment, you'll be adopted into his family. You'll be guaranteed a salvation and an eternity with him forever. Please come to Jesus today. If you're interested in looking into a local church today, I would encourage you to visit the River Church. The River Church meets at 860 Plymouth Drive. We'll be meeting this morning at 1045 a.m., and I look forward to seeing you. Well, you can get all of our previous shows at eternityimpact.blogspot.com. Again, that's eternityimpact.blogspot.com. This is just the first of two interviews with Dr. Habermas. I hope you'll tune in next week to hear part two. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great Sunday. Oh.